Hey everyone, this is Kevin from the Q&S podcast. Um, today we're talking with Alan Rice from Gun Owners of America, the New Hampshire State Director and a national spokesperson for Gun Owners of America. Is that correct? Yes, thank you, Kevin. Hey, well, well thanks for joining today, and uh, thanks for everything you guys are doing to help support us and well and all gun owners. Um, You're what, welcome. We, um, that's what we do. We've, we've supported Second Amendment rights since 1976 with um, no, our no-compromise message. Uh, G- GOA believes there should not be any restrictions on an enumerated protected right, such as the right to bear arms. Um, we go before Congress, state legislatures, and we deliver a consistent message um, that it is an enumerated right and that compromise is off the table. And making a bad bill less bad doesn't make it acceptable. Um, in the case of well, it shouldn't make it acceptable. That's correct. I agree with that. Um, the, the latest rage now is, you know, the the AR style pistol, um, your honey badger that they're that they're picking on. Yeah, yeah. So you've seen everything we're going through with that, and we sincerely appreciate the support and you guys being outspoken about it. You know, I, I want to hear. I've watched some podcasts and stuff you were on about it. I, I want to hear from you. Um, you know, what do you think about it? Why are we being singled out? What's their position on braces? Why do they seem to waffle? Why are they getting away with it? What can be done? Um, well, you, you know, in, in your opinion, and the gun owners of America's uh, position on. So that's a good, really good multi-part question, Kevin. So the braces. The first thing that the listeners need to know about the braces is they're not defined anywhere in the federal gun control laws. And because they're not defined, ATF has been issuing letter rulings to your company and others saying, well, you can make this product, and if you do it this way, it's a pistol. But if you do it slightly differently, it's a rifle. The problem we have with that is that they change their mind and they told you it's a pistol, and you're selling it as a pistol, and they come along and say, well, we decided the honey badger is a short-barreled rifle. Um, We have a problem with that. It lacks integrity. It lacks intellectual honesty because Q manufactures short-barreled rifles. The implication is you're trying to avoid the National Firearms Act. If you were trying to avoid it, you wouldn't be manufacturing short-barreled rifles in the first place. In our yeah, opinion. I think yeah, we we did short barrel rifles even you know well before pistols. So, so in our opinion, there is a need for both. Um, there are states where a private party can buy one of your pistols, but that same person can't buy a short barrel rifle. Um, That's makes correct. Both makes absolute perfect sense. The yeah, well let me let me ask you about this. The original, so, yeah, let me interrupt you for a second and ask you this, because, you know, here's something that I got messages on from people who are disabled who own honey badger pistols, and some of, some of them being combat disabled veterans, um, which, you know, I think that always kind of reaches everyone's heart, but it's also the original inspiration for the pistol brace when Alex Bosco, SB Tactical, invented it. And it was for a friend of his that was a combat disabled veteran who had lost some limbs and needed it to stabilize an AR pistol. I think it was for hunting. 
um, initially. It could have been for target shooting. But, you know, it's interesting by them reclassifying this without any prior notification or anything. We have combat disabled veterans who own the Honey Badger pistol so that they're allowed and able to shoot it with one hand. And I've had them message me. And so by ATF's, you know, just arbitrary action, now these combat disabled veterans who bought the Honey Badger pistol so that they could still enjoy shooting sports in their Second Amendment rights are now felons, just like you or I, if we own a Honey Badger pistol. So It's crazy. It's a, well, um, yeah, it is. And let me just go into that a little deeper, Kevin. So I read the same material on SB Tactical's website that, that you've probably seen. And as an OEM, you, you may have seen even more detailed information. So 18 U.S. Code Section 921, subparagraph 29, the term handgun. Handgun means a firearm which has a short stock and is designed to be held and fired by the use of a single hand. Well, if the honey badger has a pistol brace, and I'm looking at a picture of it right now. It's a thick piece of rubber with a strap to go around a user's forearm that enables them to fire it by the use of a single hand. That makes yeah. the definition in the 18 U.S. Code 921.29 of a handgun. The honey yeah, a lot of people don't. Handgun. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, and it was brought up to us because um, the ATF and, and their evaluation, you know, say that we use the term stock and part of the description of the honey badger pistol. And the irony is, if you go to their website and you look up the definition of a pistol, what you said is a quote. They say a short stock on a pistol. It, it's just the hypocrisy with it. It, it, it. It's really boggling. Like, what the hell are you talking about? You call it a stock. Well, what what I find and, even more ironic, manufacturers um, such as yourself um, use different names to market their product. Um, I've been involved in firearms for almost 33 years. And back in the yeah. 1980s, when a person bought a Smith & Wesson revolver that had what everyone would refer to as grips on it, when you opened the instruction book for the manual, the manual, the instruction book that came with the gun, Smith & Wesson referred to those grips as a stock. They called them stocks. Yeah. Everybody using the guns called them grips. And a lot of us in the 80s would take off the wooden grips and put on rubber grips make it better for defensive use of the firearm. But in the book, Smith & Wesson called them stocks. Back yeah. then, it was different issues, different politics, but nobody accused Smith & Wesson of calling a revolver a revolver to get away from calling it a short-barreled rifle. But they used the term stocks. I don't know why they used it. I, I don't know anyone who worked at Smith & Wesson in the 1980s, but they used the term stock. It shouldn't matter what you call it. The, what should matter is the function. And the function of the rubber piece on the back of the honey badger with the Velcro strap allows it to be attached to the forearm, and it makes it a handgun. Now, we've been – GOA has been doing this, dancing this dance with ATF for decades, and they will push as far as they can push in an effort to regulate firearms. And I think because they got away with banning bump stocks – a little over a year ago. When we're in court, we're litigating that one. 
but there weren't a lot of people who owned bump stocks. There's an awful lot of people, both disabled and able-bodied, who own AR-15-type pistols. And I think yeah. that now is the time for Congress to act. Um, we are not advocating defining a pistol brace because it would take a Herculean effort to get any bill through the Congress. So what we're advocating is removing short-barreled rifles from the National Firearms Act. If that's done, a short-barreled rifle will be sold just like a rifle with a barrel of 16 inches or longer. You know, go to your favorite gun dealer, you know, pick out the rifle you want, fill out your 4473, do your next check, and you're off and running with your new rifle. Um, it would also allow people to, at home, change the barrel on their rifle if they decide one's too long with an AR. They're modular. You put on an upper. Now you have a shorter barrel, and you're not committing a felony. That will solve the issue with the honey badger. It will solve the issue with every other AR pistol that's out there because we understand that you're not the only one to have received these letters. You're the only one well, who has gone public and said, hey, this is a problem. Yeah. Well, let me, let me pause you there if you don't mind. I want, I want to cover a couple things. So first of all, I, I keep saying, seeing what you just said about other manufacturers receiving it. To my knowledge, it was last year, and it were it were um, it was only people or companies that made shotguns is who received these letters. I'm unaware of anyone that is that's a rifle company that's received a letter for the pistol brakes like I received recently. Is that correct, or do you know something I don't know? Um, well, so my colleague John Crump uh, did some articles on this issue, and yeah. he's he hasn't been allowed to name the companies. So he was told who they are. He's interviewed them. He's promised them confidentiality. They, For whatever their reasons, they don't want to go public. But John tells me there's at least four other companies who have received letters similar to yours within the last year. The idea of not going public for this kind of stuff is remarkable to me. And, and I didn't really understand it. Um, you know, I feel like at some point, the you know, initially the ATF, even though they didn't communicate this to us prior, um, once we did receive the letter, communication seemed to open there briefly for a few weeks, and I thought we were going to find a remedy that would that would be satisfactory and wouldn't put all the owners at risk of you know a felony. Um, and they kind of just went radio silent, and to me, going public. They were demanding, and obviously, too, we have liability in informing our customers or not informing our customers who have these products. So um, once ATF seemed like they were unwilling to communicate and um, denied a request for it to be non-retroactive for people who were already in possession of these, uh, then we had to go public. They wanted us to contact everyone. You know, they actually wanted us and expected us to get certified letters from every pistol owner who's purchased one of our products stating that they had separated the upper and lower and would register them as a Form 1, but they didn't want us to go public. How in the world would you contact thousands of people? Like, you know, we sell the guns to distributors and stuff like that. Well, I was going to so ask it was that, obvious. because if you're like oh, most manufacturers, you're selling through distribution, you wouldn't know who the end user is. Yeah, and of course ATF knew that. Um, so, I mean, I think they were trying to put us in a position to probably bankrupt us. Um, you know, which I refuse, but to me, making it public, you hope that all the gun companies, everyone would catch on. All the gun companies would then 
sort of band together and push this to get, you know, some resolution that would be satisfactory to everyone, not only the gun owners, but the companies as well. Because, I mean, you think about it now, a lot of these larger gun companies, the percentage of their rifle caliber guns that are sent as pistols that they'll no longer be able to do um, if this sticks, it's thousands of people losing their jobs and getting laid off. Um, so it's far worse for other companies than it is for, you know, me or my company. Um, we can continue and we'd still grow at this point without pistol braces. But when when you said something about the bump stocks earlier, it, it makes total sense, and it's why everyone should have stood up for the bump stock, even though most of us didn't care about bump stocks. An infringement and erosion of the right to now look at where we are. And I love the idea that you guys don't even want them to define it. We just want to remove it from the NFA. And I have kind of two points on that. First, I think they should be forced to define it if they're going to regulate it. Secondly, I completely agree with just the arbitrary nature of the rifle barrel length and what determines a short barrel rifle and how we came up with it. And why is it 16 inches? A rifle has to have a barrel of 16 inches. Why is it 16 inches? I I don't know the answer to this, so it's not rhetorical. Well, I do know the answer, so I'd like to share it. Yeah, I would love it. So I just want to comment um, because you you did go public, and and it's it's ironic that that we're speaking because – Aside from the fact that we both live in the same state, GOA believes in going public. We, we, when we see something really bad in Congress or a state legislature, we believe in letting the grassroots gun owner know so they can contact their elected officials and say, no, this, this won't stand. Um, the reason it's 16 inches, um, it's a Depression-era law. Um, the NFA was enacted in 1934 under the Roosevelt administration, and when the NFA was enacted, the gangsters were in all the news uh, post-prohibition. Uh, prohibition had just ended a few years earlier. Bootleg alcohol, and you know the gangsters would saw off their rifle and stick it under their trench coat. Oh, yeah, I guess I did know this. I was thinking that was just the shotgun part, but, yeah, I think I'd... In the 21st century, people dress really casually. In the early 19th century, so about 100 years ago, people, they wore long coats. And yeah. you still couldn't conceal, you know, a very long rifle, but a short short barrel, shorter than 16. They'd cut the back of the stock, they'd cut the barrel off, and they would conceal it. And that was what Congress, that they picked 16. Um, I think 16 is a bad number for a lot of reasons. Uh, n- number one, we, we don't believe in the NFA. GOA is on record. And... We will repeat this as long as it takes that we will attempt to dismantle the NFA one unconstitutional law at a time. Um, but the problem with 16 is a lot of people, collectors, sports shooters, people want a gun for self-defense. They, they want the exact same gun that the U.S. Army carries. And the M4 carbine has a 14-and-a-half-inch barrel. So a person has a few options to do it legally. They can buy a 16 they can buy a 14 and a half with a welded flash suppressor to bring it up to 16. But the problem with that is, is when you start tinkering with the muzzle, and I'm sure you know this as a gun designer, your groups invariably loosen up. It, very rarely does muzzle tinkering shrink the group. Um, or yeah, that, buy- that's, I, I hate pin and weld. It, it's ridiculous. I can't stand it. I refuse to do it. I have I all of my companies. You and I are in the same category, Kevin. And then the third way is to 
to buy a 14 and a half inch and pay an extra $200 um, for the inch and a half. Um, that that's insane. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, there's no logic to it. Uh, some people claim, you know, that well, if you go to 10 inches or 8 inches, it's more concealable. But we're at a state in our nation's history where, with the exception of five or six anti-gun states, the entire country is shall issue concealed carry. So does it really matter if you conceal carry a 45 automatic or a 300 blackout? Does it? Yeah, because there is. Well, j- just from a even from a different perspective, you know, with a rifle caliber, when you cut the barrel down, shorten the barrel, you lose velocity or muzzle energy. It's actually less lethal than with a longer barrel. So there's an argument there as well. It just seems the barrel length thing is arbitrary and ridiculous and. Um, I, I mean, a lot of this is. You brought up a lot of good points, like the idea of stocks, and then the ATF defines a pistol as something having a stock, but then they say you can't put a stock on a pistol. And and so some of it is just the names of things and what they're called change over time. You know, and you and I are both familiar with silencers and suppressors and that whole argument. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of this, and it, it, it does seem to, and, and especially with the actions that ATF seems to take and the rel- you know, they go relatively unchecked, obviously. And in this sense, they're really being obnoxious and they're being bullies. They're refusing to communicate. They're not being forthright with information or their intentions or what we can do to correct it. Um, you know, which obviously has already cost me hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just sad. You know, I never really had someone who's been licensed by the ATF for over 25 years now. You know, this Boston field office, frankly, is the first time I've ever had any sort of issue or felt like I couldn't get good support from ATF, my local ATF, or even dealing with tech branch and NFA for, you know, 25 years. So, yeah, I'm kind of bummed out about that. And just the fact that they had just finished an audit three weeks before we received that letter. And, you know, why didn't we discuss it then? Or why not come up with a remedy? You know, you had all your IOIs, and they had actually agents that came here as well. And it's like, why didn't you guys say something then, rather than continue to put more people in a position who are honest gun owners and law followers in a position of being felons? It's very disingenuous. And um, it's been nice to see, you know, Matt Gates and others kind of take a stance and send letters to them and be open and vocal about it. Um, you know, it's easy for me to feel singled out, uh, but it is all gun owners, and it is, it's just complete abuse by ETF at this point. I, and I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff that we posted from the technical evaluation that is embarrassing and just 100% completely incorrect and almost to the point of fabrication just so that they can somehow justify sending the letter, the cease and desist letter. Well, I think some of that, we're in the middle, you know, you got your letter in August, and we're in the middle of a presidential election. Um, yeah, definitely seems politically motivated. That, that's ATF has a history of doing that, and we've, we've seen this before. Um, and this isn't the first time um, that ATF has made something in NFA firearm that was not. Um, there was a Street Sweeper Striker 12 shotgun in the 1990s that had a revolver yep. cylinder 
that they then said was a destructive device. That was under the Clinton administration, so we disagreed with it. We argued it. We fought it, but we weren't surprised by it. Um, yeah. This, from what we're learning, even though President Trump is the president, this didn't come from the president. This came from bureaucrats who were holdovers from Obama, and they're doing this, we believe. Yeah. We don't have proof, but we, we've been dealing with this agency long enough to know that we can form opinions, and our opinion is that they're doing this to undermine President Trump, to turn the gun owners against President Trump um, on November the 3rd, and I hope that doesn't happen um, because everything we're seeing, you know, you got a letter that you got a 60-day um, break in it. Um, they're reevaluating it. Um, there's plenty of these out there. Um, you know, I'm looking at um, SB Tactical's website right now, and they're saying their product is designed, and they're your source supplier, designed and intended for use as a firearms brace. They can't control yeah. how someone might might modify it. Um, you know, that's that's not something that that's controlled, and the the ATF well, that it is 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 very dishonest. Well, I think in several ways. You know, we were doing things in earnest. You know, we weren't early adopters of the pistol brace. Um, you know, for several reasons. And the first just being we didn't need to be. Um, you know, in doing SBRs and having a back order on that, we didn't need to diversify. Uh, and that just wasn't a segment of the market that we were in a position to try to capture anyway. But with, what we did was when we wanted to do a pistol brace, we went to SB Tactical, who we knew. We knew they had approval letters from ATF. We didn't go out, you know, rogue and try to do our own and not submit it to ATF. We went um, to SB Tactical, worked with them, designed the aesthetic aspects of it, they dictated on their knowledge of working with ATF and their approval letters what we needed to do, you know, design-wise and mechanically for it to work as a brace as the ones that they have approval letters on do. And, and you know, and they had a pretty recent one with the SIG MPX brace, which is nearly identical to the one that we do. And we license it from them. They manufacture it. And we get it from them and install it on our guns. And, you know, we do some OEM with that for some other people as well. Um, so, I mean, I guess ATF doesn't go after them because they don't make guns, I guess. They just go after the accessory, but they went after bump stocks. And that was they just an accessory. After, they did go after bump stocks, and, and you know, Gun Owners of America is in court over it. Um, unfortunately, the courts move slowly, so it could be another year before yeah. we have anything on it. Um, I did want to circle back, if I could, for a second. Sure. Um, you mentioned a point, I guess, from your engineering background, um, that the firearm loses velocity as the barrel gets shorter. And yeah. as someone who teaches self-defense use of firearms and teaches people how to fight with these devices, um, one of the things we constantly drill into people is know your target and what's beyond and know your ammunition. And, you know, we worry about over-penetration um, because if you shoot someone legitimately in self-defense and the bullet goes through them and hits an innocent beyond them, that, that's not legitimate self-defense, and you can go to jail for that. So the lower velocity... Or even just the civil liability as well. So, yeah, well, yeah. both, both well, criminal and civil. So you take something like a 300 blackout and you slow it down enough it, with the right ammunition, soft tips, the whole package of what you would use for self-defense versus shooting steel plates... It's actually safer. 
and it's more appropriate, and you get the increased energy of the rifle, but yet at a slightly lower velocity of, than the 16- or 20-inch barrel, so you don't get the overpenetration. It won't go through, and it won't hit someone, you know, 40 yards beyond the person who's actually trying to hurt yeah. you. So all the way through, the shorter barrel in this type of firearm makes a ton of sense. Um, and oh, yeah, absolutely. These, these laws were written decades, almost a century before we, we had universal acceptance of self-defense concealed carry. And that's Yeah, you know what's interesting about that? You know, the FBI has done a ton of work on ammunition and bullets and things like this, and they're probably the world's foremost expert when it comes to this kind of ballistic evaluation. And Buford Boone was a guy retired from the FBI who spent years, you know, since basically their shootout in Miami, um, developing this for the FBI. And we worked with them, actually, for the um, – they were doing work on behalf of the government. Once we went – early in the war, we went into Baghdad, and they were shooting a lot of people in the city. And we worked a lot with the government at that point on projectiles for all of the weapons that they had that would not overpenetrate so that it would be safer in those situations. Um, you know, and that was even in combat, but in an urban situation. And that was the distinct reason was, you know, we can't have it um, them go after a high-value target, engage in a gunfight, in a building or in an apartment or in an urban area and the bullet penetrate through walls and hurt, you know, and, and there be collateral damage of, you know, innocent bystanders. And, you know, we worked for years on stuff like that, me and my engineers, to develop uh, these rounds and projectiles specifically for that. So, I mean, it, it is a great, great argument for what you're saying, and it does make a lot of sense. And but, you know, the problem is what I saw in this technical evaluation where I was so bummed out, and I guess I've been spoiled by having really high-level engineers that work for me for a very long time, you know, from MIT, uh, UNH, just guys that are very dedicated to it, to the science of this stuff. And so ATF Tech Branch, when we received an evaluation for them, it was – if my 14-year-old daughter did that evaluation, I would hope she got an F in her class if it were a school project. It was horrific. Everything that they stated in the letter, 90% of it was incorrect um, from a technical perspective and oftentimes the opposite of the point they were trying to make, whether it was the length of pull to where they, instead of measuring it parallel to the bore axis, which is the correct and known way to measure firearm length of pull, you know, they angled it so that it would exceed the number that they wanted. And then with measuring the surface area of the rear of the arm brace compared to the rear of our stock, they said the arm brace had much greater surface area, which is absolutely incorrect. It has almost 40% less surface area. But then in the very next paragraph, they say that it's clearly not a brace because it's not long enough to go around someone's arm. And the only way you make that longer is to increase the surface area of that. So it's like every argument they made was incorrect, defied logic, or proved the opposite of what they were trying to say. And it was astonishing. So I don't even know how you engage in the conversation at that point. Well, all of those things that you just described, obviously you, you have to engage them um, because they're your regulators. You know, GOA, we want to engage the Congress. And all of those things that you just described are more reasons to remove short-barreled rifles from the National Firearms Act. Um, 
You're absolutely correct because all they're doing is arbitrarily. You know what I think happened too, which is just kind of disgraceful for me. Um, and you know there could be a situation where maybe I would be torn with it. But what they claim was they got this gun in a criminal investigation. So as you know, what that probably means is someone was arrested for who knows what. They happened to have a honey badger pistol. It could have been something that, you know is is having weed, or you know maybe they were arrested for a DUI or some trumped-up charge of some, I mean, who knows what. And so they said, you know, like a uh, local municipality sent them them the gun for an evaluation to see if it was a short-barrel rifle just to charge someone with an additional felony. Um, You know, and it is ridiculous. Like, someone bought this gun legally, and then they're trying to modify the definition after purchase and make it non-retroactive not only shut us down, but to be able to charge someone else with a felony, you know, attack on another charge, which, you know, to me is also disappointing. We made a video back in the early 1990s. Um, it was called ATF, Breaking the Law in the Name of the Law. And this has been a problem for decades. This is nothing new. Um, you know, we saw it at the... Um, Ruby Ridge situation, where the yeah. had um, uh, the guy's name escapes me now momentarily. Uh, Randy, Randy Weaver had him showed him where to saw off the barrel, and so the shotgun was like an eighth of an inch too short. Um, we we've seen it at you know Waco, Texas. Um, a lot of people, you know, said that you know they were doing really bad things to children, and even if all that's true. The ATF isn't a child protective agency, and they tried to go after them on these firearms charges. They could have arrested, you know, David Koresh in town, in his car. You know, they decided to do this raid, and and we've seen this. Those are the high-profile ones that make national news. But we've seen time and time again ATF breaking the law in the name of the law. They test firearms um, repeatedly. They break things to get them to function as fully automatic, and then they charge people with, you know, an illegal machine gun. Um, we have seen this yes, time, I, and time and time again. I can't imagine if I didn't have the money, you know, initially to fight them, what they would do to this company or would have done to me. Or, you know, how they essentially would have extorted me to get their way, you know, in order not to bankrupt me or put me in jail for something. Um, you know, I've generally not been on the fringe of the right wing of conspiracy theorists. But this is so overreaching and ridiculous. You know, it's funny, a popular hashtag that came about when we made this public and when people who own the Honey Badger pistol were freaked out and angered by it, the the one hashtag that popped up was, don't Waco me, bro. And it is interesting that it's just like such a popular sentiment with this sort of thing. You know, here we are, everybody trying to obey the law and even these vague regulations by ATF that they can interpret any way they want. And that it's just sad that we have a regulatory agency that's supposed to serve the people. And most everyone that owns a gun would agree with the don't wake of me, bro, thing. You know, I mean, Ruby Ridge, what a tragedy. You know, um, my belief is what you said with everything that I've read and I've met Randy Weaver. Um, you know, they took someone who... who They probably knew they could take advantage of to a certain degree and make an example out of. It would be my, like, asshole opinion of it. And 
and they set him up. But, you know, he's isolated in, uh, uh, you, you know, his, his land, you know, in a rural part of Idaho, isolated from everyone else. And they decide to go in there and get him and kill his wife and, you know, would they kill his son or either shot his son's friend or something like that. And, um, you know, just a huge freaking tragedy over what? That he told someone where to cut a shotgun barrel? You know, and that's uh, it, the it, reason sickening. we're committed to dismantling the NFA one unconstitutional law at a time. Um, you know, Mossberg, they make the uh, the shockwave. Prior yeah. to the shockwave, they made um, an, an NFA firearm that looks exactly like it, um, and it was uh, it was considered an AOW, so it transferred for five dollars, not two hundred. But yeah, I've got were, one. The photos were same requirements. Yep, just fingerprint, lower, signature, yep, all that stuff. Just a lower price tax, and then some smart people at Mossberg figured out how to make it not an NFA weapon. Well, we well, can you explain that to me? Yeah, it had like, to do with overall length. Um, they they used a different grip and they made it longer. And they there's an approval letter on their website. I have a copy of it somewhere that they yeah. that they got and they they caution customers not to change the grip, not to make it shorter because then it would fall into NFA territory. Well, what about the barrel length requirement for a shotgun um, not being an SBS? It's not a shotgun. Because it doesn't have a shoulder stock, it's a, it's an other weapon. It transfers as an other. Oh, so a shotgun by definition has to have a shoulder stock. Correct. But our concern, if they get away with picking on your honey badger and every other AR type pistol being sold, Mossberg's letter might get revoked. I don't know. Um, if, if I were Mossberg and I was in charge of that company, I have my lawyers looking at real carefully and making sure I had some defenses. Well, there should be, you know, I mean, common sense tells us that there should be some personal accountability or regulatory accountability if they want to, if they've given you a letter and it allows you to sell products and put you in not only a position if they change their minds of criminal liability, but also civil liability, which can even be more powerful because it can bankrupt companies. You know, if the ATF puts me in jail, it sucks for me and sucks for my family, but the company continues and grows, and, you know, all these people that I employ, they still have a paycheck and, you know, enjoy their lives. Um, but if they're able to to shut the company down, let me – with taking a letter back, it seems like there should be some congressional approval before they can do that. There should be something like that to where there's a checks, checks and balances. If they can give you approval for something and with some duration it puts you in a position of either prison or bankruptcy, they should have to go through a process that they are not in charge of to revoke that letter. Well, you're right, and we agree with you, and that's why we've always said the ATF, you know, breaks the law in the name of the law. Um, yeah, what a bunch we, of bullshit. We really believe that the way to fix this is not to pass legislation that says, well, if they're going to issue a letter to a manufacturer, they can't just reverse it. There's got to be a process. We feel yeah. this whole thing can be simplified if you just repeal the NFA. 
because then it won't That's matter correct. if the shotgun is 18 or 16 or 12. It doesn't matter. And you won't have to That's worry right. about which grip you have on your shockwave. If you like the Mossberg, yeah. put whatever grip you like on it. If you don't like the Mossberg, then then you don't have to buy it. But it wouldn't. you wouldn't be in in this situation of thinking about, well, if I change a grip for comfort, am I now in NFA territory? Uh, that's yeah. I mean, what what you're saying makes total sense. You know, let me let me switch gears for a second too. The so with silencers and that being a, a large part of my history within the industry, and a big part of the business that I, that I um, own now. Um, what's it going to take? Like the approach has not been correct, and it is interesting. We're the only nation in the world where you can readily acquire firearms. But a silencer is regulated. What's what's the real approach? Oh, okay, of course we want to abolish the NFA, and I would give ten million dollars tomorrow if we could do that of my own money. Um, but what's it going to take to remove silencers from the NFA if the NFA is not abolished? Is it um, because? You know, is, is it going to take something from, like, the American Disabilities Act? Is it going to take OSHA, EPA? Like, what's the real approach to make it sensible to where you have something that makes one of the loudest sounds of anything a consumer can buy and everything else that makes a loud noise that you can buy is mandated by the government and it has to be shipped with a muffler? How do we get the same regulation or the same government support or deregulation for the ATF for firearm muscles. Well, we um, one of the arguments that we think is a winning argument is that it's a public health issue. Um, yeah. Here in New Hampshire in 2016, Representative John Burt pushed legislation that was enacted into law to make it lawful to hunt with a sound suppressor. Prior to that, people could own them, but they couldn't hunt with them. And yeah. Representative Burt, um, I know him pretty well. He's a strong supporter. He's not a hunter. But he said, hey, it's a public health issue. If you can own a sound suppressor, and I realize the statute calls it a silencer, but you and I both know that's not correct. Um, if you can own it, then why can't you use it for hunting? And I think we need to keep pushing this narrative because it's truthful that it's a public health issue. Um, it's safer. Um, it it doesn't make the gun silent. It's not like the movies. It reduces the noise signature to levels that are less likely to damage hearing. Um, there have been a couple of bills in Congress. Um, unfortunately, it seems whenever there's a pro-gun bill keyed up for a vote, something bad happens. In the case of this legislation that we're talking about on sound suppressors, there was a shooting at the baseball game in Virginia. Um, and then Paul Ryan, who was a spineless, was not a strong Second Amendment supporter, never brought the vote up um, on deregulating sound suppressors. Um, there have been a couple of proposals um, over the years. Um, ASA has been pretty vocal. Uh, sound suppressors, again, date to the National Firearms Act in 1934. Fast forward 100 years, they're more popular, they're less expensive, they're easier to make, they weigh less, and people realize it's a public health issue it's not a criminal issue and in the case of a lot of handgun suppressors the tax costs more than the suppressor you know someone's going to pay 200 yeah. tax on a hundred dollar 22 suppressor it doesn't make sense 
the silencer thing to me, you know, I, I understand the politics of it or even people's rationale when it comes to a true definition. Silencers, I've dedicated my entire life to small arms and particularly silencers and suppressed firearms. Um, and I think it by no means I'm an expert. I think I have more experience than most people. I don't take the political approach or the true definition. Like, I honor Maxim, higher Maxim, by the fact that he patented and named it the Maxim silencer. And that's why I call it a silencer. And I don't like calling it a suppressor because it confuses some people who are very novice with flash suppressors and stuff like that. And, and for me, I know silencer sounds scarier to a lot of people or more likely to get public support if we said suppressor, but I think it's just true education with it. Um, and when we talk about not making the gun silent, like, who cares? Uh, to me, if you commit a crime with a gun, you should be charged. If you don't, you shouldn't. Like, I think felons should be able to own firearms. I think just because you're a felon, that means you were arrested, you were convicted, you served time, you were released. If we think that you're rehabilitated or you served your punishment, you should be able to protect yourself and your family from physical harm. So, you know, I even draw a pretty hard line with that. But, for instance, I I love motorcycles. I've been riding motorcycles my entire life. I got my first one at, uh, two weeks before my third birthday. I hate straight pipes on a motorcycle. They're loud and they're obnoxious, and I understand the argument. Some people think it makes it safer. I think most people do it to be cool, but I think you're an American, you're an adult, that's your right. Just like I always wear a helmet when I ride a motorcycle. It's not a law in New Hampshire. It's not a law everywhere, and I think adults should be able to make that choice. I don't care. Um, but I also am looking at electric motorcycles right now because I just bought a Tesla a couple months ago, uh, a car, and I love it, and it's silent. And there, there is no sound from, you know, a motor because it's just electric motors. I am going to get an electric motorcycle. It's silent. And I think that's okay. Um, and I think it should be the same thing with a firearm. If we can make guns silent, that is best case. Because just like you said, with a rifle, it doesn't make it silent. It makes it quieter where you can, sh- you know, with a good rifle silencer, you can shoot some number of shots without damaging your hearing. I think my job is someone who designs these things, uh, and especially if they could be more prolific and they weren't in the NFA, I want them to be silent. You know, if my gun is absolutely silent, it's not going to cause me to go commit a crime with a gun. And if I do commit a crime with a gun, I should be punished and I have to pay a penalty, just like everyone else. Um, so I like the idea of them being silent. I'm not sure we can ever get there. I don't know what it would take to get there. But I think it should be the goal, and I think it should be okay. Well, we would certainly support that. We, we, As I said at the beginning of our discussion, we don't believe in any restrictions on this enumerated right. Um, but yeah. I want to circle back to the felons um, because you raise a very, very, very important point. In the federal gun laws, definitions 18 U.S. Code 921, Section uh, 20, Congress has actually excerpted out nonviolent felonies. Uh, the term crime punishable by imprisonment for a term exceeding one year does not include any federal or state offenses pertaining to antitrust, unfair trade, 
restraints of trade, or other similar offenses relating That's to the wonderful. business practices. Congress has carved this out. Uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett talked about this in an opinion a few years back in the district in the circuit court, and she was in the minority. It was a dissenting opinion. The courts have not recognized this. This is really bad because the person who yeah. maybe he did some things that were bad, but he didn't harm a person. He didn't beat up somebody or sexually assault them or yeah. physical. He, he, he did some bad things. He went to prison. He came out, and now he's a, he's a felon for life. Um, the state where you and I live, um, New Hampshire, has an interesting twist on the definition of felon. Um, New Hampshire law provides an affirmative defense that if a person is charged under state law with being a felon in possession, the crime they were charged with would have to have constituted a felony under New Hampshire law. And the beauty of that is if you're convicted in New York of carrying a gun without a license or having a 30-round magazine or, heavens to Betsy, having a short-barreled rifle, New Hampshire doesn't take notice of that because those aren't felonies in New Hampshire. And the problem we have at GOA is not only that the the U.S. Code specifically exempts out nonviolent felonies and the courts are ignoring it, an even larger problem is the disparity amongst the states in, in what constitutes a felony with respect to firearms. What constitutes a felony in New York is perfectly normal conduct in Maine or New Hampshire. And yet if you're caught in New York, and sometimes travelers are caught just going through the airport, you lose your right to own a gun in the rest of the country per federal law. So it's a big problem. Um, that's, a, that's a strange one, especially with you and I living in New England, because if you're in any other part of the country and you want to come visit us, like let's say you and I invited friends to go on a hunting trip in northern New Hampshire, you can't go through America without going through New York to come to New England. You have to go through Canada or through New York. So it, it, it's a barrier. Um, well, there is, it is a barrier. There is a federal law on point. Um, our attorney actually helped draft it in the 1980s, 18 U.S. Yep. Code Section 926A. It's interstate transport. Um, and you can, if you're unloaded and locked, you can travel through any state. The problem is New York doesn't respect that. Um, but there is a federal yeah, law that, on point. That's such bullshit. Um, but this is what, what we deal with. And, you know, people say, well, they're felons. They can't have a gun. And they don't, they don't dig a little deeper. They don't realize. Uh, well, I, I mean, how many people can afford to fight it? I mean, I know I had, I've had my own legal issues, and they've been unfortunate and not correct. And as you probably know, I actually even in, recently won a lawsuit against the town of Exeter. New Hampshire for their participation and behavior and, you know, lack of being honest and following the law and uh, my arrest. That, you know, when I think about felons owning guns, you know, so many people, after I saw my, even my local municipality, they were just not prepared. Like, they obviously violate the rights of everyone that they feel like they can they just weren't used to someone that had a bunch of money that wasn't going to take their shit, you know, the and average, it's wrecked a bunch of it. The average bureaucrat um, will make a case, maybe something out of nothing, 
because most people either can't afford to fight or don't know how to fight or don't have the fight in them. And that's why they get away yeah. with this nonsense. You, you, you know, it probably cost me a million dollars, which I was happy to spend. And the police chief and the prosecutor both resigned. And then they were found guilty. And you know what their maximum their maximum financial penalty that they have to pay me. You know what it is? I, I'm thinking it's, the way you're asking, it's probably pretty low. $200 for the chief of police and 500 for the prosecutor, and they're both refusing to pay. And they were found, you know, guilty <laughs> by their own court. And what's so great is that now it'll go to the New Hampshire State Supreme Court probably, and it'll change law here in New Hampshire to where if you're in a position of power like a prosecutor or a police chief and you ignore or you suppress evidence or you lie under oath, you will have severe accountability, like I had, which is fine. Um, so, you know, I'm very happy with that. Um, it's going to change law. But back back to the, the felon position, um, because some of that involved my stuff, you know, because my stuff involved an ex-wife and um, – it was not a domestic violence situation, and that's what they tried to put it under so that they could prohibit me from owning firearms, and it's a bunch of bullshit. Um, but we got it straightened out. But fortunately, you know, if I didn't have resources, we would not have gotten it straightened out. Um, but you think about Martha Stewart. Like, she can't own a gun. Wouldn't that be terrifying if that were your mother? Like, she can't own a gun. She's very famous, and... She's no longer allowed to protect herself. For what was her conviction? Like inside trading or something? It was insider trading and, and lying to the FBI. And I think a lot of people have learned with the FBI, and it's been in the news lately with this this Manafort cat and Michael Flynn. The best comment is no comment. Yeah, almost the best comment all the time because you know here with my situation when in the town of Exeter, you know, I'd gone through a, a, a very terrible divorce and child custody, and I've had full custody and all decision-making of my children since they were very young. And um, <clears throat> the court in Atlanta where we lived allowed us to move 1,100 miles away from her for the benefit of the children. And then after a number of years, she moved here and did the exact same thing here that she attempted in Georgia. And in Georgia, the court was sophisticated enough, and only because, again, where I had money to fight it, for the court to actually investigate. And it cost over a million dollars um, for the court to investigate all the professionals and all. It was an 18-month investigation and a two-week trial. But, I, but it was the right decision. I ended up with full custody of my kids, all decision-making. And I shouldn't have moved. I thought I was doing the best thing for my children to remove them from a situation. I bring them here. Years later, she moves here, takes the exact same tactics here. And the difference was where they investigated in Georgia, Exeter, New Hampshire, sends a SWAT team to my house. And, you know, and that's how this all started, um, you know, and they just completely ignored what had happened in Georgia and that was unfortunate. It was unfortunate for my children. And, you know, I would say for me, but I don't really care at this point. Um, but, you know, that was their whole goal, too. 
and, and was for me not to be able to possess firearms or own a firearms company. Well, and that would put um, you out of business. You would lose your ability to run your business. Yeah, which was that you can't own a gun. You can't be a responsible party on an FFL. That's right, and uh, and they tried hard, and um, you know they tried so hard that they broke the law, and and now the town's paying the price, and they're having to write me checks, and that's great. Um, but it would have been a lot better, you know. And I tried to explain to them after they came to my house the first time with the SWAT team and all the stuff. You know, I went to visit the chief the following. Well, I emailed him the next morning. Went two days later to visit him when he had the opportunity, and he refused to listen to me to read any of the court documents from Georgia or anything, you know. And, you know, it, it was tragic because now he can't work in law enforcement here again. The prosecutor is not going to be able to work for, you know, any New Hampshire government. She's going to have to go to Massachusetts if she wants to continue to be a prosecutor. And it, uh, made things very difficult for a lot of people, and there's a lot of police officers going to end up losing their jobs, and that's going to hurt their families. Um, yeah, but it was another, you know, this was similar to me to the, the current situation with the ATF right now. Like, this sucks, and I hate it, but I hate it because I'm having, you know, to deal with uh, an agency that regulates what I do, and they regulate it by... It's easy to say, you know, okay, forget you, I'm not going to do this. Well, you've already threatened me with, a, a, you know, criminal action if I don't do a cease and desist. And I'm fine, but then to not have an avenue outside of ATF to negotiate this arm brace situation or to get anything in writing. Because, you know, after they sent the first letter and we responded, they told our attorneys they wouldn't respond in writing because they were afraid of a lawsuit. Like, what kind of bullshit is that? Um, you know, we're... we're unheard of i mean it's we we live in a written world even i mean now it's an email world but things are written down because they can't be misunderstood they can't be misconstrued not responding in writing tells me that they believe they're possibly in the wrong yeah no yeah they are completely in the wrong and yeah i mean it's the problem is you can't hold anyone accountable at ATF or any regulatory agency. No one can you hold accountable. And it's almost like there there is a, a, a non-firearms company in our industry that has a lot of money, and they're in contact with me, and they want to start an organization where they just call out and investigate people in these positions with the ATF or whatever regulatory agency that overstep and abuse their power and have no accountability because, you know, it's a government job. They can't be fired and start calling them out individually. Spend money on private investigators. Have billboards outside of D.C. Call these people out when they overreach and infringe on people's rights. Well, and that's very exciting to me because now in a world of social media, you can do it quickly and instantly and be effective. Um, because, you, you know, for me, it would stink. If they were able to shut us down, I have a lot of people that depend on this company for, um, you know, an income to be able to support their families. I've got a a lot of my personal wealth invested in this company. It would be horrible for my family. Um, And these regulatory people have no accountability personally. However, you know, they are people with families, and they need jobs and all this stuff too. And if they started being called out – and not, you know, the way they go after us is behind the scenes and they extort you and they threaten you. 
Because all they have to do is not renew my license for, what, a clerical error? And, oh. you know, they can claim it's not retribution and no one, you know, I have to sue them and spend millions of dollars and it takes years to get some kind of outcome. By then, the company's defunct. Um, but if they started having the type of accountability uh, by being called out, by being named, you know, maybe some of this stuff would change. If if Congress is unwilling to do it, you know, maybe there is room for an organization that will go after individuals and state facts of what they're doing and name them and show pictures of them. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing. I'm unsure. Well, Congress needs to take action, um, not just on the SBRs, but also on reforming ATF. Um, and and they need to... They, they need to take some action. Um, you know, we, we've been working on draft legislation in all of these areas. Um, you know, we'll see if we get a good election outcome. You know, we're now just, you know, a couple, less than two weeks away. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is going to hinge on the election. Um, Congressman Matt Gates has been really out in front on the pistol brace issue. And you know, sure he had that warning a few months back, and it was kind of not taken seriously, mm-hmm. and then, you released your letter, and now we know it's real. And I think he's going to wake up some other members of Congress. He's he's pretty vocal on it, and, you know, we'll take the help, you know, wherever we can get it. But Congress needs to do several things. They need to change the law, and they need to put in some accountability for ATF. Um, you know, even if President Trump's reelected and he does makes all the right moves and reigns ATF in, he'll only be president for four more years, and some other president can undo that. If Congress changes things, now there's a federal law, and they, I think that would be a little bit stronger, a lot stronger, actually. Oh, well, yeah, we both know. I mean, you know, the, the, the bad thing about laws is it's so hard to change them. And, and I'm sure, you know, that was, you know, it should be hard to make them, and it should be difficult to change them, I guess. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, because I'm not so sure. You know, Trump's great in a lot of ways. He, he did roll over on bump stocks. He's made some comments that I don't like about silencers. But it is a huge step away from Joe Biden's approach, obviously. Um, but, yeah, Congress enacting laws or putting some restrictions on ATF would be wonderful. And any regulatory agency. I'm sure in other industries it's just as bad when they have to deal with regulatory. When you get one individual... You know, like I said, here in the Boston field office, they're horrible. They are absolutely horrible. Um, in Georgia, my IOIs or any of the agents that worked in Georgia, if I ever needed anything, I felt like I could actually reach out to them, and they would always try to help. If they didn't know an answer, they wouldn't tell me to call somewhere else in ATF. They would put me on hold. They would call an FA and merge the call where we could talk to them and ask them questions. So, that I'm getting the same answer they're getting and that we could work together to make sure we're doing things correctly. And that was such an enjoyable experience. And I'm not sure other than the fact that Boston, Massachusetts is incredibly liberal and obviously does not want firearms companies in New England. But what the difference is? The home, historic home of the firearms industry. And everybody's moving. I don't know much about Boston ATF, but what I did want to point out, because you're right, we disagree with the president on bump stocks, but we issued um, a list of 10 recent wins for gun owners by President Trump. Uh, we put that out yesterday. 
And, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, he made some mistakes. Um, I think with the silencers and President Trump, he ad-libs a lot, and then he has to dial yeah. it back. I, I, I think he shoots off the cuff. He doesn't know everything about an issue, especially in firearms. As we've been talking about highly technical. And he had lives, yeah. and then he's got to dial it back. But we have a – I'm not going to read the list. It's lengthy. But we, we issued it in, in an email yesterday. Um, Can you give one highlight? What, what's the good win? Um, well, he uh, there's a couple of them, actually. Um, w- one of the things that's most important that directly affects people like yourself is he designated the gun industry as an essential business under COVID-19. So Wonderful. people who make guns, sell guns, repair guns, they were able to stay in business no matter what state they were in. Um, in the case of Massachusetts, we had, we had to sue Massachusetts um, to get the gun stores open. But we, we did and we won. Um, you know, we have two, two three Supreme Court justices. Uh, those are big things. And then yep. all the U.S. District Court judges. That's, there's a lot of judges, like almost 300. Yeah, the judge is long-term. That is going to be huge. And obviously the Supreme Court is going to be great for anyone who's conservative. So that's wonderful. You know, I'm... I'm sorry, Kevin. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go right ahead. I want to hear well, this. The other long-term is he unsigned the U.N. Arms Trade Treaty that Barack Obama signed. Yeah. And that was big. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's done lots of great things. You're right. He could probably stay a little more quiet. I mean, I don't know. I watched the debate last night, and he did a great job compared to the first one. Um, you know, and it's difficult for me because I don't know the president, but I am good friends with uh, his sons and particularly Don Jr., and he and I hunt together and stuff and, you know, shoot together, and, and, and we're friends. And he and I, and we make it a point to really never discuss politics because, um, you know, it would be great if it were like a casual I, I knew him, but he and I met, hit it off, we hunt together, and we're friends. And and I don't ever want our our friendship to for me to have political motivations or anything. But it is interesting for anyone that doesn't know, because it is, if you're just a gun owner and you watch television or you see social media and you think about politics and, you know, Trump can get under anyone's skin. And he can be difficult to like at times. But he's done a lot of great things for the nation. But he's obviously not a gun guy. He's a New Yorker. He's not a gun guy. But he has pledged support. He did screw up the bump stocks. But you named some things he's done that are great. But I will say this. Me not knowing him personally, but knowing his sons personally, they are two of the most committed people to the Second Amendment I have ever seen. And even at a selfish, personal level, Don Jr. spends every moment he's not working or with his children hunting and fishing, every single moment. Um, it's been his life's passion. I've said it before. He he loads, hand loads ammo over 30 calibers. His brother um, turns his own barrels, has a lathe in a mill at his residence. Um, they are really, really committed to the shooting sports and the Second Amendment. And... You know, that's an interesting part. If anytime there's a picture of he and I together, people make comments about, tell your dad to do this or that. You know, like, my my parents were anti-gun until probably after 10 years of my career. So I can imagine, you know, like, telling your dad to do something. And uh, people don't recognize think, it. 
I don't think the president's anti-gun. I really don't think that. I, I think he's misinformed. And I think he well, has- yeah, I don't, I don't think he's anti-gun. I think he just doesn't. It, it's not his thing. He didn't grow up with guns. He's not into the shooting sports. Um, but I think he does believe in the Constitution and the amendments and, you know, thinks that the Second Amendment is important. I think you're right. I think he misinformed on bump stocks, probably didn't really anticipate the, the fallout or the real effect or that it would embolden ATF, who I think he is very opposed to what they're doing to me. Um, that it would embolden them to go after the next thing, which is pistol braces. And, you know, and he wouldn't even really understand without it really being explained to him, I don't believe the pistol brace and the significance and the difference where, you know, his sons 100% understand. I mean, they are extremely into firearms and shooting and hunting. So I think it's just a difference. You know, another thing he did, and it it goes unnoticed, was um, they redefined ATF's interpretation of a prohibited person. There's a catchphrase in federal law, fugitive from justice. The problem with the catchphrase is if someone doesn't pay a parking ticket, they can be entered into NCIC as a fugitive from justice because they didn't show up to court and they didn't send the check. That's not a fugitive. That's so pathetic. That's That's a clerical error. But Trump ordered the Justice Department to redefine that interpretation. And now if you miss a parking ticket, you don't lose your Second Amendment right to own a gun. And these awesome. little things, um, these little things that that you know we know about, and I learn them from our federal lobbyists, but they just you know they, they get overshadowed by the big headlines. Um, he, he modernized the yeah. export controls. Um, you probably pay the twenty two hundred and fifty dollars as an exporter, but it was yeah. any any gunsmith had to pay it. So the guy who repairs guns, you know, in Central New Hampshire, never exports guns anywhere outside the lower forty eight had to pay that 2250 as well. And that's been changed. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's it's awesome. one of those things that it, it, it goes in obscurity. You don't hear about it unless you're the small custom gunsmith who's no longer paying. Yeah, it, and it should make news because, you know what, I didn't even know about that. Look at my position even within the industry. But you have, um, you're, so probably we, an ex, you're probably a legitimate exporter, though. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to pay it. I mean, and, and truthfully, even if we didn't export I would do it anyway because, you know, my fear of being picked on by ATF or, you know, whatever. If, if something fear. happened. You shouldn't fear your government. You shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be afraid I, of being I agree, but not only have I paid over $10 million in income tax in my life, but I paid millions of dollars in attorney's fees <laughs> because of my government. So, uh, yeah, I've developed a healthy fear, and it's healthier as I've gotten older. Um, but, you know, it's hard for me, too. Like, I'm so passionate about – I feel so fortunate to have found something I'm truly, truly passionate about, and I think I make a difference, and I think I'm very good at my job. And, uh, it, you know, it's fulfilling, and I think it benefits other people, you know, not only, like, my employees here or vendors or any of that stuff, but, you know, also the people who enjoy our product. And for me to constantly have to spend so much of my time and resource on, you know, battling regulatory, which should be here to help us. Like, I don't want to do anything illegal. I don't want any of my employees to or my customers. And, you know, I spend tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars a year to make sure we comply with the law. 
and we fight. Oftentimes, I think, like with this with ATF, I want to believe it's a misunderstanding, which I think at this point is probably not. But all we want to do is comply with the law so we can continue business and we can continue to innovate, and I can pay families that work here, and we can continue to support customers that honor us with wanting to purchase our products. And it is frustrating well, as the funny, owner. You know, and, and you're right, and that's what you've described is literally the American dream. And Rush Limbaugh says, and you're proof, Rush Limbaugh says the most successful people are people who love what they do. If you get up in the morning yeah. and you go to work and it doesn't feel like work, you're going to be really successful. And and Rush is right about that. Well, I, I think he's right. Um, I think even there's been very few times in my life I would trade my life with anyone else. And I don't know many people that way, and I know how fortunate I am. And I also know how hard I work to do this, but I think it's a difference. If you've ever had a passion in your life, and I think there's – it's a mystery to me, but I think there's lots of people who haven't had a passion in their life, you will sacrifice and do it at all costs. And I have sacrificed so much to be in the industry and to continue to work in the industry. You know, when I sold my first company to Remington, I made lots of money, tens of millions of dollars, and I had zero debt. So it was, I've never needed to work again, and that is the most fortunate thing. And I will say, between my time of selling that company and starting this company was the most miserable time of my life. And financially, you know, I didn't grow up with money. My parents are factory workers. and Well, they're retired now, but they were. And I didn't know we were, like, poor when I was young. But my parents took great care of us. I was fine. Um but I do realize now as you get older and you, that having that passion and loving to get up and going to work every day, yeah, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And it's why I continue to fight this crap. Um, you know, I love the Second Amendment. I love our customers. I love the employees. But if I didn't love what I do, you know, I wouldn't, like, right now take on the ATF and spend millions of dollars and risk you know, the business and everything to do it. But I want to continue to work, and I think it's the right thing, and I think what they're doing is bullshit. And I think they need to be called out. It's very disappointing that other companies, whether it be SIG or Daniel Defense or Springfield Armory or these shotgun companies that received letters, aren't calling them out. You know, I'm not trying to make enemies with the government, but I'm also not trying to get shut down and lose my livelihood and give up the passion you know, that I've worked so hard to, to maintain. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand that. Is, I mean, we're going to be right there. We're not, we're not backing down from the fight. Um, we never have. We've always motivated our grassroots members, um, got the word out, pressured Congress. Um, and, you know, if you want to fight, we want to fight. We, well, we're you know, I don't – I always say I don't like to fight, but I guess I do. Um it's not about money. You, you know, it's about right and wrong. Well, I don't. You know, I think maybe I think maybe with some people, and maybe I'm just not that good of a person. I don't know. Um, I, I have my own set of morals, and what's right and wrong is probably doesn't completely. You know, all of ours don't mesh exactly. Um, I think what they're doing is bullshit to a huge degree, and I can tolerate. At this age, in my experience, I can tolerate some bullshit. 
Um, you know, for instance, even with my local municipality and my ex-wife, I tolerate a lot of bullshit, you know, from her because she's my kid's mother and from the town because, you know, they were misinformed and just so stupid they were willing to listen to, you know, an alleged victim because, you know, whatever reason, she's a woman or whatever the, you know, societal standard is at the moment. But, you know, I'm doing this selfishly. I want to continue to work. And I think also I am fueled to some degree by all the other things in the Second Amendment. Um, but them singling me out it is complete bullshit. You know, SIG doesn't have an approval letter for their brace, and they've sold hundreds of thousands of them. Well, SIG's a government you know. contractor. Oh, well, there you go. Um, and I believe behind closed doors some of those things are talked about. I, I 100% believe that you must be right. And, you know, but for me, I don't know, I guess I'm just still romantic about the idea that that's not the way it is. You know, I, I don't sit around, and I run my mouth in our industry, and I challenge people. You know, usually within the industry, it bothers me most when other companies lie to customers. That That is a pet peeve of mine that drives me insane, and I do not care about making friends if it involves something like that. Um, I want, I value the customer, you know, for growing up with people who worked paycheck to paycheck and really sacrificed and worked second jobs to make sure my brother and I, you know, had clothes or had food or, you know, that we lived next door to the government housing, but we weren't living in the government housing. Um, you know, I honor that. I just have a very difficult time with, number one, I don't like being called, you know, a liar or for us, for ATF to accuse us of going around something. Um, and I don't like being singled out. And to me, it doesn't have to be everything's not fair in life, and I get it. But what we are, the product that we are selling, we were a late adopter, and we painstakingly went through the company that had that originated the brace, that got the original letter, that had worked mostly with the ATF to stay in a position for me to protect the company, protect the jobs here, and protect the, you know, our valued customers who have spent their hard-earned money on our products. And now, without warning, and they were here for three months doing an audit, they send a letter three weeks later telling us to shut down, you know, half our business, um, while every other company that sells an arm brace is fine to do it. Yeah, that stinks. I'm not okay with that. And I believe a lot of these regulators feel like they need to justify their usefulness, their existence, their agency, um, because if they don't, Congress will defund them. In the case of ATF, I think we could save a lot of money if we defunded them. Yeah, and, you know, it's another thing, me predominantly always working for myself. Um, you know, if I don't work, I don't get paid. If I don't create new products, we don't make more money. So I've never had that security blanket of a cushy government job where you can't get fired. Um, and that's pathetic to me. Like, I don't respect that. I don't respect people who feel that way. I think wherever you are, if uh, you need to create mad value to your organization, whether it's the government or just private industry, 
And I just don't relate to people who don't have that motivation. You know, for me, you would think at 35 and made tens of millions of dollars. And there are lots of people that were shocked, you know, within my family primarily, like, why in the world would you still work? And, you know, that's one thing where I always took care of my parents because they worked in factories and they didn't realize, you know, they just thought it was like preordained probably that that's their life and they were better off than their parents were and they gave my brother and I more opportunity than they had. Um, but I have always just thought I should be able to do whatever I want, but I'm going to have to make huge sacrifices for it. But, I, you know, in doing that, I have to contribute. I have to add value. I have to create things if I want more money or justify my existence. And it's really easy. If I don't do that, we just don't get money in here every month, and I don't get paid. Um, so I don't really relate to that whole government bureaucracy and a cushy job, and you can't fire me BS. Well, I, I don't either, but I look at – I don't mean to shift gears. I'm just looking at your website again. Um, you have yeah. Universal, um, which is, I yeah. guess, a, a, a lower-priced – AR-type pistol, but again, it has... Yeah, it was for people It was for people who couldn't afford the Honey Badger, or we couldn't produce enough Honey Badger, so to give another alternative through uh, alternative manufacturing methods to produce more guns for customers who wanted our products but maybe couldn't obtain a Honey Badger. And but it has the, the, the brace. Yeah, the SBA-3. It looks different than the Honey Badger, but it's it's different, but it's the same in that it's a rubber brace at the back with a strap on it. And I, I come back to what I said earlier. I, I, I don't think any of these, your products or any of your competitors are safe if ATF's allowed to get away with this. You know, you're right. And and the sad thing, well, it was kind of a good thing and a sad thing because I think there's a lot of people, I think it's the majority of people, maybe it's just our industry, but I highly doubt it, where, oh, well, that's just cute. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's just the bump stock. Who cares? Well, one thing the ATF, good and bad, did in our letter, our initial letter we received, cease and desist for the honey badger, was they said they suspect the sugar weasel is also um, a short barrel rifle and demanded a free sample. And that uses the SBA-3 from SB Tactical, which is the most prolific brace in the history of this country. And there's between 1.2 and 1.3 million in circulation. So it instantly makes millions of people, well, it makes between 1.2 and 1.3 uh, felons. And, and that was the significance of that. Um, and so then what they're saying holistically, by the way they measure things, if SB Tactical submits that brace and they get an approval on a 10-inch 556, but you build it using that brace and a 9-inch 300 blackout, you change the gun, and that gun is no longer approved. And that's just horseshit. Well, again, as I look at, at your full product line, and I, I haven't seen any of these in person, so you know maybe we can set up an appointment. I'd love to see your facility. But as I yeah. look at the pictures on your website, and they seem pretty high-resolution pictures, I, I don't see where you know they can just draw the line and, and stop at the honey badger, and you know they could pick on the sugar weasel. Yeah. Well, they also demanded the mini fix, which is a gun we make with a brace. You know what bugs me about that? So they demanded we had to send them one of each of those. We had to give them to them. So these are where you know these are expensive pistols to give away. The mini fix was three thousand dollars. You know, and, and if you look on some of the government purchasing sites, they're always buying guns and putting it out for bid. 
but they were, because this was a criminal investigation, apparently, according to my attorneys, they were able to put that in that letter and demand that we give them to them. So I just, not only is the ATF, you know, breaking it off in me, but they had, then they make me send them $4,500 to declare other guns that we have, short barrel rifles, when you're not even required to submit them for approval in the first place. I had to give them to them. That that really irked me. That irks me more than paying the, you know, 30 grand a month in attorney bills. Giving the ATF two guns. Knowing that they want you to give them short-browed rifles, which are clearly short-browed rifles, that further stiffens my resolve to keep pushing for repealing short-browed rifles from the NFA. Um, Because they've proven they will abuse it, and they will push. I mean, you shouldn't have to give away product to the government. No, I agree with that. That really bothered me with the attorneys. And, you know, I think they just didn't want to fight that fight, but that bothered me that I had to give them that. Because, you know, they're not giving me anything but a hard freaking time. I don't get anything free from the ATF. I could kick in the balls. So that bothered me a lot, but we had to do it, and we had to submit them. And so they're going to evaluate them now, which you're not supposed to be doing, according to the DOJ. But they are evaluating them, you know, just thumbing their nose at the DOJ and the president. And so that's where we hope the DOJ and the president will continue to put pressure on them, step in, and shut them down in this regard. Um, you know, it's one thing, them overreaching, but them singling people out within a broad industry seems crazy and just so un-American. And it makes me so just disgusted with the government that they would behave this way. You know, if we have rules, we have rules. We all got to follow them. You know, wh- why would I have special rules? over anyone else. You know, if anything, I should get more of a break. I probably paid more in taxes than most people. You know, I don't get my own special parking spots or highways or anything. And now now I got them harassing my business. Um well I guess we could go on about this for days. Well we could we could go on um for days. Um you know and I, I'm looking at the, your letter again and I've read this letter four or five times already. Cease and desist all manufacture and transfer of the honey badger, badger pistol unless you properly register each firearm on a Form 2. Well, if you put it on a Form 2, then you would, you've already done that with your other product, the honey badger SBR. Yeah. You wouldn't – they contradict. Well, well, let me ask you this question, speaking of contradicting. Because we brought this up to ATF, and they just laughed. So – we, of course, have to pay federal excise tax on our pistols and rifles, and it's 10 and 11%, depending on if it's a pistol or a rifle. So all these pistols that have been shipped have had the excise tax paid on them, which is greater than the $200 tax. So now they're declaring them SBRs and then requiring a $200 tax. So do we get the federal excise tax back? Because that means the government owes me a million dollars. So I, I don't know the answer to that, Kevin. But yeah. since you, you brought the excise tax up, um, and I, I can send you an article, you know, when we get offline, GOA is on record as we, we want the excise tax repealed. Um, it's, not, <clears throat> it's not something we're in favor of. Um, it's a 70-plus-year-old tax. Um, the handgun portion of it is about a 45-year-old tax in the early 1970s. Um, it's... 10% on pistols, 11% on rifles, shotguns, and all ammunition. They say it's used for hunting and wildlife conservation, but 
the majority of firearms that are paying the tax, especially handguns, are not used for hunting. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big issue. Um, you know, a hunter will sight at his deer rifle and maybe shoot two or three rounds to take wild game. A target shooter will shoot thousands of rounds a year. Um, it's a huge disparity. Um, there's a lot of issues with the tax, um, both the way it's imposed, the way it's extended to all arms, not just sporting arms, and then the way the money's administered by the states. Um, you know, I know you're from Georgia, and the southern states yep. tend to build ranges and public shooting facilities with the money. Uh, the northern states, specifically New Hampshire, the Fish and Game Department just uses the money for more anti-gun activism. Um, there are no public ranges up here that I'm aware of. Um, so oh, yeah, we have a lot in Georgia. Yeah. And there's a lot in Florida. Yeah, in Georgia, there are a lot. Yeah. And that that's all built with gun tax money, at least it is in Florida. It's not that way up here. And so there's there's huge issues with the tax, and, you know, unlike the $200 on an SBR, that's fixed. This tax is a percentage, so buying a, a Q Honey Badger pistol, a person would pay far more tax than if they were to buy one of your competitor's pistols that's a very similar-looking pistol and it uses the same magazines but it's less expensive. So it's it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, that, I people, mean, that can't... People don't see yeah. the tax because it doesn't show up on their sales receipt. You know, that's one of our gripes is it's, it's hidden. You pay it at the wholesale level when you make a gun. Yeah. But it's not, it's not like sales tax across the river in Maine where it shows up on your receipt when you go buy something at the Kittery Trading Post. It's... Yeah. It doesn't, and people don't know about it. And I think if they did know about it, they would be... You know, frustrated. Look, we're not against. Yeah, you know, but people need to understand it's rise. It's raising the price of the gun ten percent. So if you're buying a two thousand dollar gun, you're paying two hundred dollars to the government before so you pay sales tax that you don't even know about. I like to liken it in the opposite direction. If you're buying like yeah. a Charter Arms revolver, basic three to four hundred dollars self defense revolver. Um. In normal times, we're in a panic right now. People are buying guns and ammo like crazy. The prices are very high, but they'll come down soon. You buy a Charter Arms revolver, that's $40 in tax. There's your, there's your practice ammo. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know, an excellent point. At the low excellent end, point. I think at the low end, people are hurt even more than at the high end. Um, and Well, I mean, I, you know, I always go back and forth with that, and I don't know. Yes. Um, but I don't know when you go to socioeconomic stuff. I, you know, it's either right or it's wrong. You know, it's not right because I have more money, and wrong because someone else doesn't do as well financially. Uh, it, 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 but I mean, you could be right. Maybe I'm mistaken, or I'm in the minority opinion. But it's just wrong. It's well, it just wrong. wrong. People it's should be aware. And we don't we don't we don't agree with it. It's not what I meant to imply. But the person yeah. who's buying a four hundred dollar gun for self defense purposes only usually has to scrimp and save and really cut corners to get that gun. And that extra forty dollars goes to practice ammo. The person who can yeah. write a check for a honey badger probably is better off financially and they're less likely to miss the extra ten percent. It doesn't well, mean it's, it's true, but they've, they've also mean... probably paid, you know, I know of the, you know, the, the 28 people in my family, I've paid more in income tax, and all of them put together times 100 probably. 
it, you know, like I said, I don't get any special treatment. Um, but but just in general, th- that sort of taxation, like where does it go? You know, one thing that really bothers me, and maybe it's the same thing, and I'm just not sure that we'll get on the same page of what we're discussing there, but I think we both agree that it's wrong. But when I was doing NFA stuff 20 or 25 years ago, it was a $200 tax, just like it is now, for a machine gun, silencer, SBR. You had to do all the same stuff you do now, fingerprints and, and whatever. Um, but it took 60 days, and it was on microfish. And now we have computers, and a NICS check is instant, basically. But an ATF check, now that everything is automated and computerized, to get an SBR machine gun or silencer, you pay the same $200 tax, but it takes up to a year. What the hell is going on? I think that's intentional. Um, I think it is, too. It doesn't make sense. They could go look them up on Microfish 20 years ago and be fast, but now we have computers and it takes them a year. No, I think I think that's intentional, and that's, um, you know, one of the things that we'd like to see changed in the way NFA guns are bought and sold. Um, you know, we, we, we'll chip away at the NFA little pieces at a time or big pieces. Um, we don't really care how we undermine it as long as we undermine it. Um, yeah. That's, that's a big thing. A lot of people uh, celebrated 41P four or five, maybe six years ago at this point. Um 41P made it easier for people who lived in states where they couldn't get a police sign-off, but it made it more difficult for trustees of trusts, and it didn't save time for anybody. Uh, the wait times are longer now than they were when 41P was enacted. So yeah. what have we gained? We haven't really gained anything. Um, you know, and a lot of people jumped up and down and thought 41P was a big deal. I don't know that yeah. it's a deal if you're waiting a year to get your NFA device where before 41P you were waiting a few months. And like you said a few yeah. years ago or 25 years ago when you started, it was 60 days. 60 days for a Form 4. It's getting worse, not better. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a couple things about uh, gun owners of America while you're on here, if you don't mind. Um, first of all, I just went on and uh, made a donation to you guys through the website. Very easy, very simple. Is that the best way to support you guys? Is it that, or do you want membership purchases? And what's the best way to help you guys? Good question. Well, first, thank you for your donation. We appreciate that. So basically, we are activist-based, activist-driven. So the donations are appreciated. They help us keep the lights on. You know, we we have a pretty high-tech alert system, and that helps pay for it. Um, but the second best way to support us is to sign up to receive our alerts. We don't send a ton of email just to send email. If we send email, it has an action item, whether it's right to the White House, right to your member of Congress, right to your state legislator. I can tell you here in New Hampshire during legislative season, I pump out a ton of alerts. Our alerts make it really easy. Um, we have a software package called One-Click Politics. It pre-fills a pre-written message to the elected representatives, you punch in your name, address, zip code, you can hit the submit button, or if you don't like the message we supplied, go erase it, put your own message in, or personalize it, or do anything you want. Oh, this is what you guys just did with the take action thing on the honey badger that's on your website. Exactly. That's exactly what we did. Yeah. 
Oh, that's and, great. Yep. And the best way to help us, because we're grassroots driven, we don't have uh, an army of lobbyists. We have a couple of people in Washington, a handful of state directors around the country, is to sign up to get the alerts. And when we ask people to take action, is to actually take the action. And we make it easy because we want people to take action. So, yeah, we really appreciate um, your donation. We, we, we're we grateful for it. Um, but for those out there listening, um, you know, Harry Reid has said the NRA is bad, really bad. But Gun Owners of America is worse than bad. Um, Congressman Ron Paul calls us the no compromise, the only no compromise gun lobby in Washington. And we're proud of those those names. And we got those names because we have the ability to motivate large numbers of gun owners to take action. Um, our alerts are written in a way that they're mobile phone friendly. So you don't have to scroll side to side and up and down. They, the computer people have worked it out that it shows up the right way on a mobile phone. And you can just go down, click the action item, punch in your name and address, hit send. And we've learned over the years of doing this that the legislators count. And, yeah, if you want to personalize the message, feel free, but they count, and it's all about numbers. And if they're getting thousands and thousands of messages on one subject, it generally gets their attention. Um, we have a count. Okay, on, yeah. We have a count so on for our every, So everyone listening, what I did was it's gunowners.org, is that correct? That's what yeah, I'm saying right here. And then one, you have like a slideshow of ten main things that are going in front of me. And, uh, one, okay, city of Philadelphia sued over gun permit processing delays is one. The honey badger was one. There's one here about Joe Biden VP, like Kamala being, yeah, communist, essentially. Anyway, the honey badger, when I clicked on it, it had a, a take action. It was very simple. It filled out my name, my email address. It sent something to the president. Um, and then even after that, it gives you the ability, if you want to contribute, donate from there. So I just did all that. So that was wonderful, and we appreciate it. And, and it was very simple. For me, someone not being incredibly tech savvy, uh, this was one of the easier ones I've dealt with. Um, we, do that on per- we, we have some computer people to do that so it's easy for the grassroots gun owner. Yeah. So well, I, I guess kind of my last question is, what are the big things, in your opinion, like what are the top three or whatever highlights that separate you guys from the NRA? And I want to caveat this with saying I know and I have understood and I have firsthand dealt with the frustrations of the NRA, including this brace process. You know, as a gun owner, they seem like our, they're the biggest, they have the most influence, but they're they're kind of seem like the softest now and the most reluctant to act, which I dealt with with this honey badger brace and got into it with the NRA attorneys to some degree and called them out um, because of their kind of wavering and waffling on what they were going to do to support us. Um, seemed pretty black and white. It seemed to me like my voice and my company wasn't important to the NRA because we weren't a huge donator. In the end, um, or a donor, sorry, uh, in the end, they they stepped up, um, and, and they've done some things to help us, and they've worked behind the scenes, and I know that to be true, and I was very grateful for it. But what, but most people, and a lot of people in the last couple of years, obviously, because of the bump stock, have been very aggravated with the NRA. But what, what are the biggest differences? Why do you guys exist when we have the NRA already? 
so I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna what I'd like to describe is is what we do and how we do it. I'm not gonna talk about the NRA. I don't want to compare us to the NRA. Um, I don't okay. I don't think that's fair to them, and I don't think it's fair to us or your listeners. So, as I described a couple minutes ago, we make the grassroots take action process really simple. Um, we look at everything through the lens of the Second Amendment as it was written at the time of the founding of America. We don't believe that there should be any restrictions. We don't believe in taking an anti-gun bill and making it less anti-gun and calling it a victory. If something's bad and you make it less bad, it's still bad. When, when you compromise and you give up some of your rights on a given day, even though they wanted to take ten times more away, you, you haven't helped the cause of the Second Amendment. You haven't helped gun owners. You, you haven't um, really been honest with your members. And that's why when we started talking, um, before we were even recording, when we were just talking, I said the way to fix this is to remove short-barreled rifles from the NFA because that is the intellectually pure position. There shouldn't be an NFA, and if short-barreled rifles are not in it, then they can't pick on your honey badger or anybody else's firearms. That's yeah, I, I agree with you, and it's, it's proving to be evident. Yeah, And we, we take that position on, on everything. The reason we're litigating on bump stocks, it's not about the bump stock. It's not about that very few people own them compared to your pistols. The reason we're litigating is if ATF can define a piece of metal and plastic as a machine gun, they can turn around and outlaw Geisley triggers because they do allow you to shoot faster. They can turn around and outlaw heavier spring on a 1911 because it makes the gun cycle faster. They can turn around and outlaw magazines. I think you understand, Kevin. The list becomes endless. It's not about the bump stock as a device. It's about the notion that a regulator can turn around and say, even though Congress didn't do this, we're doing it anyway. And that's why we're litigating on bump stocks. And that comes back to our basic philosophy of no compromise that the Second Amendment is not up for debate. It, it is what it is, and that's how it was written, and that's how we interpret it. And we've learned over the years when we insist and we dig in and we say no compromise, um, we, we, we get the right outcome. Um, when you give in and you say, okay, yeah, you want to ban 100-round drums, hey, if, if, you, if you let us have certain magazines, we'll go along with that part. No, we won't agree with it. So in the end... Some people don't like us. Harry Reid calls us worse than bad. That's okay. I'll, I'll take that. Um, That's because great. In the end, we're being intellectually honest. Um, the other thing that yeah. we we're very respectful of our members' money. Um, yeah, we do have to travel a lot for GOA business. We fly coach commercial. Yeah. Um, I don't wear fancy suits. You know, I, you know, we wear a lot of GOA polo shirts and sweatshirts and. We're pretty casual. Um, we don't get all impressed with the bling. We, we have something to do, and we do it, and we try to be responsible with, with our members' money. I, I think that's all wonderful. You know, what I hope from this, too, is, you know, like we discussed, the bump stock was one thing. It didn't affect a, a, a very large percentage of gun owners. The arm brace surely does. And, you know, my hope with us going public amongst the other things that we've listed is that people will take it seriously now and that the what you're saying is correct. And you can compromise and compromise, but eventually, you know, you're going to cut to the quick. And 
you're gonna, everyone is going to start to lose things that are valuable to them and see that the NRA or that the NRA has been willing to maybe compromise as far as the bump stock. Um, they've been a great lobbying group in a lot of ways. Um, and now we have the ATF really overreaching and to a point to where it goes from whatever 10 or 20, 30,000 people with bump stocks to 4 million with arm brace guns. And I hope that us going public, you know, we've had a tremendous response. Congressmen, you know, you guys, lots of people that we've not reached out to, just the consumers in general of firearms, um, have taken notice, and there's been tens of thousands of emails sent to congressmen and senators, the NRA, the president, and that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, and that's kind of my hope with this is, is that maybe everyone, including the NRA, can take uh, more of the approach that you guys are taking. You know, I think you guys were probably ahead of this and understood that we weren't dealing with people like us and any um, attempt to compromise was going to be taken and they were already working on the next move before, you know, we agreed to the first compromise. Um and it just ends up in an erosion of rights from probably, I won't even say it's the radical left anymore, it's just the left. And that people don't need firearms. The Second Amendment doesn't matter. You know, the first one can be very important. The 14th is, can be very important. But number two doesn't matter at all to some people. And um, I don't want those people making my decision. And, well, and, and as I, as I think now, it's coming on there. As of now, on our Honey Badger Alert, We've had over 30,000 messages sent to the White House. Um, I'm hoping that we, um, we can increase that significantly. Um, hoping I don't know how many listeners you have, but I'm, I'm sure it's a lot because um, you're, you're a well-known brand. And um, I'm hoping that, that we can increase that, that amount of um, uh, emails back to the White House to, um, to get the letter out and, you know, get people – to take the action and, you know, get the – I mean, the 60 days is great, but early December is going to be here before you know it. Yeah. Um, isn't that something that they do it before? That they – 60 days, so they, they make it post-election. Um, I mean, that just really intensifies the them being – disingenuous with this whole thing. Um, you know, it just happens to be a presidential election going on. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. I'm going to post this on our Instagram right now is where I do most of the stuff. We'll post this on our website as well, try to get more people in there. I just submitted through your website to President Trump. Hopefully others will do it. I want to thank you for all the work that you and your organization does to try to protect our rights. And, you know, my hope is that we can all become more responsible, participate more, and be more appreciative of what you're doing. You know, donate your time, donate some money. Um, it's, it, you know, it's way easier to send 25 bucks and send an email than spend two hours complaining and to the same group of people that believe what you believe on social media all the time. So, guys, go and do something that actually makes a difference and matters and can help support the guys that aren't just complaining, the guys like, Alan, that are out there actually putting their money where their mouth is, putting in their time and energy and effort to, to try to change things for for all of us to make things better and keep ATF under control. So, Alan, thank you so much. 
I look forward to seeing you. Please come by and see us. Build a gun. Do something fun up here. Come see what our guns are all about. And um, and I guess that's it, man. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you hosting me and, and inviting me on your podcast and you know letting us talk about these important issues for all this time. I appreciate it. GOA appreciates it. Yeah, let me know how uh, you know I can help you guys. You know, offline or whatever. Um, happy to do so. And um, thanks again. I look forward to, to meeting you in person. You coming up here, and I'll go shooting or something. Sounds great. We'll uh, we'll set it up. Probably it's going to be after the election, but we'll definitely get together. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Kevin. Goodbye. Bye bye.